0: This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. If you're going to be traveling during this holiday season, there's one item on your packing list you definitely don't want to forget. A great audiobook to keep you company. A True Account by Katherine Howe, read by Patria Burchard, would be just the ticket. Perfect for fans of The Lost Apothecary. This is a deeply feminist, dual-timeline novel about a fearless female pirate who took her own path and a professor who's inspired by the pirate she studies. Their perspectives are woven together by a centuries-old mystery. And the audiobook has themes I'm always drawn to, like overcoming sexism and breaking free from societal expectations. Start listening to A True Account by Katherine Howe now, wherever audiobooks are sold.
1: Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kapinski, and today, international best-selling author Amy K. Runyon is here to discuss her new historical novel, A Bakery in Paris, which tells the story of two women of different eras connected by a quaint French bakery. I love this quote from author Stephanie Dre, who says, Runyon provides a mouthwatering journey through French history with delicious baking recipes for go throughout the narrative. This book is sure to satisfy your senses, so don't miss out on this delicious read. Amy writes fiction that celebrates history's unsung heroines. When she isn't writing, she's active in the writing community, community as a speaker and ed- educator. She's a proud adjunct instructor for the Drexel University MFA in Creative Writing Program and a passionate amateur baker. She lives in Colorado. Amy, welcome to A Bookish Home. Congratulations on A Bakery in Paris. I adored this book and have been so looking forward to getting to talk with you.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me, and I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. It was an absolute pleasure to write. Oh,
1: that, that comes through as a reader. I kind of knew right away hearing about it, oh, I get to spend time in a Paris bakery with these two different strong women. And also um, one thing I really liked was the further in the past timeline really um, spotlighted an era of history in Paris that I didn't really know much about where like the Prussians are at the gate of the city in 1870. Um, So I thought that was really fascinating. And it kind of got me wondering, since we do have these two, different timelines and sort of the bakery connecting everything. It made me wonder, what was it that interested you at first in this project? Was it one of those particular characters or time periods? Did you really want to set something in a French bakery? How did it all begin?
2: You know, it was kind of um, a compilation of several factors. I was hunting for new ideas, as one does between contracts, and I was dating a historian at the time. And um, he suggested, well, Amy, you've got a master's degree in French and you know French history quite well. Why don't you do something about the Paris Commune? Because it is kind of an unsung period in French history. There are quite a few novels about the French Revolution, obviously, and Les Mis, um, you know, being the classic novel that deals with the uprising in 1848. And, um, of course, then lots of World War II stuff. But it seems like the, you know, uh, if it's not to do with the belly puck, the late, you know, from the 1880s to the turn of the century, um, it really is something that we don't know about. It's kind of a blip in history, but a very interesting one and a very significant one. And so I, I did, you know, I refreshed my memory about the Paris Commune. I said, you know what, Jeremy, you're absolutely right. And spoiler alert, I ended up marrying that historian about a year later. And oh. we got the news about the book deal. We got the news about the book deal on our honeymoon. So that was oh, exciting. Oh,
1: that's yeah. great. That's, I, I always love hearing how those ideas come to be. That's a really fun um, story to get to to hear about. Um, well, since you already had kind of the background in French history. I'm curious what your, what kind of research you dove into for these different time periods. And I guess I should back up a little bit um, for people who haven't gotten to read it yet. If you could tell us a little bit about kind of the the premise for each character and then, um, yeah, I'd love to hear how you sort of dove into each of their worlds.
2: Yeah, so um, we have the 1870 timeline, and the main character is Lisette, and she comes from a very wealthy family. Um, But when she learns about the plight of the average working Parisian, she becomes sort of disaffected with her lifestyle and her parents' outlook on life, and decides to leave her privilege behind to... um, to forge a relationship with the National Guardsmen who were instrumental in the uprising in Paris in 1871. And then in 1946, we have Micheline, whose father was killed very early in World War II, as was sadly the case for a lot of Frenchmen. And um, her mother goes missing toward the end of the war, and they're not sure why. And so she is kind of left to fend for herself and her two younger sisters who are age eight and 12. So quite young. And um, she is kind of left without a lot of options. So she's kind of the mirror image to Lisette in that Lisette leaves behind privilege and has a lot of agency. Whereas Micheline is trying to find her own agency um, throughout her life. And I thought that the two time periods were interesting to compare and contrast which is part of the reason why I did that. And, you know, as far as the research goes, I did write a lot of this book when international travel wasn't yet possible. We, will, we were past the stay-at-home orders phase, but getting into France wouldn't really been possible. And so I did a lot of um, reading from firsthand accounts of the Paris Commune, um, of which there are quite a few. It's wonderful. And of all the books, you know, recently, like I'm working on another book that really did kind of necessitate travel to Paris to make it work. Whereas this book, um, you know, there isn't a great museum in Paris about the Paris Commune, believe it or not. And I think there should be. Um so um I found a lot of you know used books um through marketplaces online and read about the first hand accounts and was able to bring it to life um which was really exciting and um I always start with a nice um second uh what do you call it um a secondary resource um so not primary source but secondary source that is kind of an analysis of the whole time period and for the Paris commune it was massacre by John Merriman which is a brilliant book that really breaks down um, the Paris Commune um, and the, the events leading up to it and the aftermath. So it was a very useful resource.
1: And for the for the French sort of bakery side of things, were you? I know you. Um, you know, you're a baker yourself. Did did that come first before you sort of dove into this book, or? Did kind of a love of baking come out of maybe trying to get into the sort of heads and activities of, of your characters and, um, you know, what their lives baking might be like?
2: Yeah. Well, I, I kind of envisioned it taking place in a bakery very early on um, when I was figuring how to meld the Paris Commune into a story. I thought, well, I want to pair it with something post-war. But then I thought about what is a common link between the two and feeding the neighborhood in Montmartre because, you know, we talk about food deserts nowadays and there are places here in the States where you have to drive a considerable distance to find a grocery store. Well, imagine if you don't have a car and it's all on foot. And that was a real problem in the area of Montmartre. Even today, it's not like exactly littered with bakeries um, compared to other sections of Paris and bread. We cannot overstate the importance of bread in the 19th century French diet, everybody ate about a pound of the stuff a day. Um, And it was, you know, what you paired with your daily soup and it was a constant. And so if um, by opening a bakery, Lisette was able to shave perhaps an hour a day of walking off people's daily toil, which is no small gift. And she was trying to think of ways to help the neighborhood that wouldn't feel or look like charity because she's very cognizant of her role as an outsider and coming from money. Um, And she's still, you know, she retains some of the advantage, you know, with the trinkets that she brings that she's able to sell, et cetera, um, that you know, set her a bit apart from other people living in the neighborhood. And she's very aware of the fact that she cannot look like she's giving people a handout. So this is a way that she's able to help the people in Paris without acting superior. You know, it kind of got me
1: wondering, too, because I'm not, I'm probably not as up on my French history and like class dynamics as maybe in, say, Mm -hmm. England but it, it got me wondering because we're sort of seeing a little bit of like the aristocracy in that first storyline in the 1870s um, and you know by the time post-World War Two comes around um, you know our main character isn't really part of that world but it got me wondering like was that as much of a Like, were those class divides as strong by then? Was there, like, a really strong aristocracy by, like, after the war in that, like, in that second time
2: period? Um, No, not at all. So, you know, we talk about the French Revolution being the end of the monarchy in France. And we talk about it being the end of the stratified class system, and it wasn't. It was the beginning of the end, to be sure. But they had an emperor 12 years later. Um, and they did for a number of years uh, up until the Paris Commune, which is why the Paris Commune is absolutely historically so significant. It was the last time that France had a monarch of any particular kind uh, because, you know, people, even those who were sympathetic to the cause of the Versailles, which would be the opposite side of the Commune, the you know, the, the royalist sympathizers or those who sympathize with the elite and the aristocracy. Um, even those who sympathize thought that the reprisals against the commune were far too grave. They murdered 25,000 Parisians in the course of a week. And um, people were, you know, taken aback by the amount of violence that it incited. And so it really was the end of that stratified class system little by little. And of course, I mean, there is always the divide between the haves and the have nots. But it became socially far less acceptable to flaunt like, oh, I'm the descendant of the Duke of whatever or the Marcus <laughs> of whatever. Um, whereas I think that Britain has still retained, um, you know, there's still titles that are used and, and venerated within certain circles. And of course, a large group of people who flaunt all of that, who think the, ro- the royal family is ridiculous, um, etc. But in France, um, you know, they it is very conscious that one does not flaunt their social advantages over those who do not have those advantages. They don't have elaborate graduation ceremonies, et cetera. It is culturally very, very looked upon to identify as anything other than middle class.
1: So interesting. And just while we're sort of making the England-France sort of comparisons in terms of their history, since we're looking at post-World War II France, And, you know, this bakery in particular, how did the war sort of affect that world? And I know, you know, in England, there's so much rationing even still after the war. Were things like that the case in France and how did it impact, you know, the famous French um, bakeries?
2: Well, um, we're definitely still dealing mean, the 1946 timeline, um, there's still, the rationing is easing and supplies are becoming more readily available. And Micheline addresses that it's not like you could buy butter and sugar with reckless abandon, but there was enough to be getting on with for the first time in a long time. And the difference I think between France and England, um, especially in, you know, um, it, as we're dealing with, um, In 1946, um, of course, uh, England definitely um, experienced uh, some, what's the word, England experienced a lot of damage during World War II, but France had to rebuild um, in a way that I don't think England had to. Physically, uh, of course, London had to be rebuilt because of the blitz, but there it, it was far more widespread. And we're dealing with, um, you know, fields that are still where you're still not able to grow crops in France because of the, the damage that was done um, with the landmines, et cetera, um, in the east of France. And so I, it affected World War Two affected France in ways that I don't think other countries experienced quite to the same degree other than maybe parts of Germany. And uh, because it was, you know, kind of the epicenter um, of the the European theater, of course, um, right. not to talk about, you know, the de- devastation in Japan, of course. But, um, you know, as far as the um, the social change, I think World War One really was the beginning of the end for aristocracy as we know it. And um, people w- didn't want to work in service and spend their lives, you know, as a butler or a footman. Or a housemaid in the the way that they had before, and that was already on its way out more or less in France, just you know a little bit ahead of schedule
1: right well, yeah, I thought it was really interesting, I think for people who have read World War II books set in Paris, I thought it was really interesting to see the city and the people go through such a, a another dark, difficult time in that first storyline and kind of seeing how people cope with that and you know one of the things that both of these storylines have are these really strong female characters and something I've been thinking about lately is how do you go about creating these heroines in your novels that feel you know like they have agency and they're strong but also making sure that they feel of their time as you're kind of crafting your characters? Is that something that you think about at all?
2: Oh, for sure. Um, I really like to think about women in, you know, in the cadre where they lived, Um, you know, and and it, it was, you know, my first books, my goodness, they took place in the 1660s. And it's hard to get yourself in the mindset of a woman who lived in that era because I, I mean, I have far more in common with a woman from the 1940s or 1950s than I do with a woman who, you know, who had a completely different relationship with the world in general than I do. But I definitely like to think about what were the social norms and expectations and um, thinking about the level to which those can be subverted without being unrealistic, Um, you know, and wanting to be, you know, for example, in my first book, the character wanting to be, um, to run a business and feel like an even partner with her husband was definitely something that would have been controversial. um, But it wasn't completely out of the realm of of possibility. Because women ran businesses back then they had to, um, alongside their husband, and um, they weren't necessarily the doormats that we might think they might have been. But you know, thinking about um Lizette and Micheline in particular i start i often start with what's at stake um and it was very easy for Micheline you know she had a lot at stake being essentially the sole care provider for her siblings and she had to do it well enough that you wouldn't she wouldn't have had authorities knocking on the door and she wanted her sisters not just to, sur- to survive she wanted them to thrive and um she had to think about what her mother would have wanted for her daughters, um, yeah, and tried to provide that for them. And she took that duty very, very seriously. And as far as Lisette is concerned, um, she's living in sort of unprecedented times, if that sounds familiar. And, um, she, you know, she had a lot at stake as far as, you know, giving up the comforts of the life where she came from. And, um, you know, I had to show her dark moment. Is, is this really a life that she can can survive? Can she really give up all the creature comforts that she grew up with in order to live a life that's more consistent with her ideals? But she had to struggle with that. So that was where I started with her. And that's where I started with Micheline.
1: Well, it's so interesting you talk about, um, you know, her ideals. It I think one of the things that's interesting for me about both characters is they're really having to wrestle with, um, almost like these moral dilemmas about what is acceptable for a woman to do during, you know, times of war, difficult, um, you know, unthinkable times in a particular place. And I won't give anything away, but there's, you know, some complicated decisions that get um mm-hmm. you know, delved into. Is that something that kind of compels you as a writer to be thinking about, you know, choices that women women would be making during these, you know, times of war and um, you know, really difficult times and kind of exploring their, you know, moral oh. compasses?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, and I am as big of a pacifist as one can be. I think war is abhorrent, but it does give us the opportunity to see who people truly are and to see us at our best and our worst. And I I like to highlight women who really do show um, fundamental moral courage in the convictions. And it doesn't mean that they can't or shouldn't or don't have dark moments. Um, I think that's necessary because I think that we are all human. Um, and I mean, at some point, I'm sure Micheline would have been happy yeah, she, you know, she, she fantasizes, she, she's angry at her mother for leaving or being gone because she's left her mess undone. She, she's left her job undone and left her, left Micheline uh, in the position where she has to finish raising her sisters and she resents that. And then in Lizette's case, you know, she has a dark moment where she has to decide, can she go back and nurse her sick husband through an ailment? And you know, keep on with their drug, you know, with their hard, you know, their hard scrabble life, or it, is she going to stay home and, and you know, hope for forgiveness from her parents and go back to the life that she knew? And both of those characters have to grapple with that. And I think that that is, you know, part of why I do what I do is to to explore those moral dilemmas that everybody um, in those situations would be forced up against. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I, I, I just love kind of walking
1: in these different characters' shoes and and trying to see, you know, why would you make these different choices, and you know, thinking about what you would do if it was you. And just fascinating. Um, well, of course, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm um we're doing this interview now, and later today, I'm interviewing Bryn Turnbull about the Paris Deception, which also um, takes place in kind of World War II. Paris and it's just got me thinking you know of course I am drawn to any book set in France or Paris in particular and I'm I'm sure listeners probably are too and I'm curious for you as an author what is it about Paris that kind of appeals to you and and why do you think it's such a, a popular destination even as a reader never mind you know just going there in real life
2: Um, Well, you know, I was a French major, so obviously Paris was the epicenter of the world, um, as far as I was concerned growing up, and I think that it really was, it's fascinating from a historical perspective, because Paris really was, you know, today it's New York City, it's kind of the epicenter of the Western world, and whether or not that's shifting, I don't know, but Paris was for a long time the center of art and culture and history, Um, And it's a fascinating place. It's an absolutely fascinating place. And there's so much material to work with. And it's a city that is, even for people who haven't traveled, it is familiar. Um, We've seen it in movies. We've seen it in literature. And so it's a place that people feel a sort of kinship with, even if they haven't been there. Um, And I, you know, I find it's, you know, every time I've gone and I've had the wonderful opportunity to go twice in the last year. Um, so I'm extremely fortunate, I guess a year and a half now, but um, it's, you know, extremely fortunate to have that opportunity, but it seems like there is always just a fascinating bit of history around every corner. And, um, you know, as far, and I'm not a huge city person, but it's one that I do feel kind of a kinship with. I feel, you know, a pull toward Paris, even though I'm more of a small town, I love, you know, get, getting in the rental car and tutoring around to all the funny little, vill- fun little villages um, out in the countryside in Paris that are kind of um, underrepresented. And I'm actually writing a book that says play, takes place in a village in Provence that's coming out in February. And that was great fun. great. Fun. I was
1: just going to ask because I saw yeah. on your website that's very soon, um, Memory of Lavender
2: and Sage. Is that the title? Yes, that's right. The Memory of Lavender oh. and Sage. And it's my debut um, contemporary women's fiction. Oh, how exciting. Um, I didn't realize that. And, that. and that takes place in Provence. Yes, it takes place in Provence. It's a woman who's um, she loses her mother at the age of 13 and her mother was from Provence. And then after her father passes away some years later, she's given a modest inheritance and she goes um, to explore the area where her mother grows up and learns a lot about herself and her family history and why she never felt like she felt fit in. And, um, you know, it's an exploration of that and, you know, my love letter to Provence. And, you know, it's also kind of a treatise about, you know, the dying village life in a lot of these countries. Um, You know, we have the same thing happening in the U.S. with small towns sort of drying up um, in villages in the south of France and Italy and not just the south of all of France, but um, Italy and um, Spain and Portugal. There are these, you know, thousand year old villages where there isn't an inhabitant under the age of 60. And it's, um, yeah, it's a brain drain. Everybody's leaving for the cities for jobs and it's the end of a way of life. And so this is kind of a deals with that um, in a small way. And it really was, you know, it was a book that, you know, very different from historical fiction and discovering the meat of that book was a very different process, but it was a great deal of fun as well. Oh yeah. i look
1: forward to reading that. And, Provence is high on my list. I've, I've been to Paris once sort of doing the backpacking during college type trip, um, but I've never been, you know, outside the city or anything and that's high on my list I think that would be really fun. So I'll just have to kind of live through the book when it comes out in February and then hopefully go eventually. Um, well, uh, one of the things I did want to also ask, um, as we have sort of been enjoying your book and now looking forward to Memory of Lavender and Sage, are there
2: any books that you've really been enjoying lately um, in your own reading life that you'd want to recommend? Oh my gosh. So I just listened to a fabulous audiobook And I do listen to a lot of audiobooks because I do a lot of nonfiction reading for um, my my own books, obviously. So to prevent eye strain, etc. Um, I I listened to a lot of audiobooks and a recent one I absolutely loved was Don't Forget to Write by Sarah Goodman Confino. Oh my goodness, it was hilarious and the narrator was fabulous. It sounded exactly like Rachel Barans- uh, Bronson from um, mid- from the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Christina Baranski oh. from the Gilded Age. I, it sounded, I mean, it was like those two actors were doing the recording. It was amazing. And that was a great deal of fun. And I'm about to start start Lies and Other Love Languages by Sonali Dev, which promises to be wonderful. So those are two toward the top of my TBR.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, I'll have to definitely link to those. And in- with the first one, it's it's so true. If, if you have good narrators, um, it just, it makes the whole experience. So that sounds really great. And Finale Dev yeah. is on, I left my list. I keep seeing that book. Um, I'll have to pick that one up. So those those definitely sound like It's great. a
2: lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, and I do think narrators are so important. And I love the work that Imani Jade Powers and Caroline Hewitt did for A Bakery in Paris. And I always spend a great deal of time choosing my narrators. And I think they did a fabulous job. So if you're an audiobook listener, definitely consider re- um, enjoying the book in that format as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, I bet this would be a really nice one to kind of immerse yourself in with um with some good narrators. Well, I really hope that listeners go pick up a bakery in Paris. I know that I just couldn't put this book down and it was such a great combination of, you know, that bit of comfort reading about Parisian bakeries, but also those really compelling, um, strong women in these different storylines and kind of getting to learn about some different chapters of Parisian history. So can't recommend it highly enough. And I think that um, everyone should both pick it up. So Amy, thanks so much for being here. Congrats on the book. And I will definitely look out for um memory of lavender and sage in February
2: as well. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me.
0: For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.